0: Welcome to Child in Mind, a new series of podcasts from Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families. I'm Claudia Hammond and this is a guide to the mental health of children and young people. In each podcast we focus on a different topic and today we're looking at trauma. A number of children experience some kind of trauma during childhood and today we're looking at the impact that that can have and why it can sometimes lead to post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And my guest today is David Tricky, who's a consultant clinical psychologist from Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families. Now, you work with traumatised and bereaved children and families. If someone has PTSD, what sort of symptoms do they experience?
1: One of the main symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is intrusions of some sort. So the way that the memory or memories for the events is stored seems to be different to other ordinary memories, and it intrudes of its own volition. So out of nowhere, the memory will jump into the person's consciousness, bringing with it the original fear, horror or helplessness, which is really unpleasant. So the person tries to push that away, And that's the next group of symptoms is to avoidance. So the memory comes in, but that's really unpleasant, and you push it away. Because you push it away, you don't process it in the same way you would process a difficult rather than traumatic event.
0: And could these symptoms appear years after the initial trauma?
1: Yes. So for some people, avoidance works quite well in the short term. But then later on, the memory comes back to haunt them, or something else will happen to prompt that memory, and then it starts to intrude subsequently.
0: And when people think about post-traumatic stress disorder, they might think of soldiers who've witnessed terrible things during war or people who've been in a very difficult road accident, say, or something like that that's a a particular incident or series of incidents. But with childhood trauma, what type of things does it tend to be that you see?
1: With childhood trauma, we're not just looking at the individual one-off violent or extreme events. We're looking at things that might be ongoing, often interpersonal in nature. So it might be that somebody is doing something to you and it might be over a long period of time. It may last for years and years.
0: And what kind of impact can that have on a child?
1: Well, it changes the way that they see the world, the way they see themselves and the way they see other people. So they start to expect certain things to happen. They start to think that they're worthless. They may start to think they're only good for one thing. They may not trust other people. They may not trust the world to make sense anymore. And that has a knock-on effect the way they then behave within the world.
0: And at what stage might you be brought in to see somebody? When would you end up seeing them?
1: Sometimes I get involved very early on, so within days or even weeks after the original event. And there I'm really trying to help the people around the child to stabilise the situation, to minimise the subsequent impact. But often I get involved later on when their symptoms have not diminished. So lots of people will have difficulties immediately following traumatic events. They may have flashbacks, nightmares. They may not want to talk about it. They may not be able to sleep. But for most people, over the weeks and months that follow those events, they diminish and they do okay. For some people, those symptoms continue for years after the event. And that's when I would get involved, helping them to process the memory, helping them to think differently about what's happened to them.
0: And it's not inevitable, is it, that somebody will necessarily develop PTSD after something, however terrible that thing might have been, not everyone is going to develop PTSD.
1: Definitely not. So when we look at the research, different rates of PTSD will follow different events. But more important than the actual event seems to be what happens afterwards. How well is the person supported? How well is their family helping them through the event? How much are they able to bring the event to mind and think it through? Those would be the things that would decrease the chance of PTSD developing.
0: So can you give me an example of, of somebody you've seen and, and the kind of things that happen to them?
1: The more straightforward sort of one-off traumas would be things like car crashes. And if the child following a car crash is very afraid, but they go back home and the family help them to feel calm, to feel stable, to feel supported, to think it through as and when they're ready. They don't force them to talk about it, but when they're ready, they talk it through, they process the memory. Those sorts of things would make PTSD less likely to happen. The trouble comes when something is too horrible to think through. So if something has gone on for a long time, has been really unpleasant, and no one actually wants to talk about it, often the family or the adults around the child avoid talking about it. They're worried they might make it worse. And so as a result, no one mentions it. And then the child thinks, well, they're not talking about it, so I bet not either. It's like a conspiracy of silence. And this child is left with the memory of the event swelling around in their mind and not able to talk it through, not able to, if you like, give it the narrative wrapper. One of the really nice pieces of trauma focused work that I was involved with was a small family had come they'd been out on a family outing and experienced a traumatic event and six months later the 14 year old boy was having nightmares and flashbacks and the family came just for the assessment and we started to get some details of how the boy was doing and then we just asked and what actually happened And they started to all jump in and say what they'd seen during the traumatic event. And actually all we did was very calmly help them to construct the narrative together. So the four of them, it was as if they were holding different parts of the jigsaw puzzle and they hadn't talked about it because they were worried it was going to make it worse. So in this calm, containing environment of the assessment, we just helped them to very slowly understand the parts that different people had of the jigsaw puzzle. And then at the end, we just read back to them what they had told us they came back for the first treatment, and actually his nightmares had stopped, completely stopped. And the mother said, I don't know what you did last week, but you fixed him, and I've got my old boy back. And all we had done was given them permission and the means to tell the story together. So sometimes my job is to give people the courage to think through, you know, it's just a memory. Yes, a horrible, frightening memory, but it's just a memory. And if people are able to stop avoiding it, and process it, then that often leads to quite quick results.
0: And you can see why families might think that they are going to upset them if they talk about it, because they might well get upset talking about it, mightn't they?
1: Absolutely. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for people that don't want to talk about it. They don't want to make it worse. They're worried the person will get upset. But ultimately, the person ends up being left with it on their own. Sometimes, following some events, people don't actually give the child the information. We see this a lot following death by suicide. Sometimes people do not tell children bereaved by suicide that it was a suicide. And I would completely understand not wanting to tell your child that that's what's happened. But they nearly always find out some other way, maybe on the playground or through the newspaper or through the Internet. And that's going to be worse this information is going to be slightly less bad coming from someone you already know, love and trust.
0: So might they find out about it and then not even tell the other people caring for them because they don't want to upset them either?
1: Exactly. So everyone is protecting everyone else.
0: And do we know why it is that some children will experience PTSD and others won't?
1: There are some risk factors that make a small difference. Things like gender, so girls are slightly more likely to get PTSD. Socioeconomic status makes a bit of a difference. But generally, it's what happens at the time of the event and after the event. So people that were afraid at the time or thought they were going to die are more likely to get PTSD. People who are not well supported, who don't have their family and friends gathering around them are more likely to get PTSD. And people who try hard not to think about it.
0: So it can sometimes be what didn't happen but almost happens that is the most distressing thing. Say if the car had been two inches to the right, you would have died. That can be the thing that's so difficult to deal with.
1: Absolutely. So a lot of it is about what sense the child makes of the event. So I've worked with a number of children who have been in car crashes or accidents. They're doing okay psychologically. They get to hospital and someone says, you're really lucky you almost died. And actually, that's when the trauma hits them because they didn't realise that they almost died. And the person is with the best will in the world trying to help them realise how lucky they are. But actually, that shifts the way the person thinks of the event. And then that becomes the traumatic bit.
0: That's really interesting because that is sharing the information with them and you, you were just saying how you know, people should share that information with them but is it something about the way people do it then?
1: Absolutely. We need to help children to create a truthful but useful meaning for the event. So it has to involve how terrible the event was but it also has to be helpful. It has to not shatter their assumptions about how safe they are, about how trustworthy other people are and how the world sort of makes sense.
0: And I guess what everyone wants is to feel that the world makes sense and that they're somehow in control of the world. And so one of the hardest things must be if the people who are supposed to look after you are letting you down, because then where are you?
1: Sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse or neglect, those interpersonal experiences seem to be more difficult, more likely to cause PTSD. So if we look at the research, the rates of PTSD are higher following an interpersonal event than they are following a non-interpersonal event.
0: I suppose then it shatters everything, doesn't it? Because then who are you going to turn to if you can't turn to the person you really trusted?
1: Absolutely. So not only are you unsafe, not only are the people that should have looked after you the ones that did it, you then have no one to talk it through with.
0: So is it hard for you when you're seeing children to get them to trust you, a a complete stranger, when even the people they loved and who they thought loved them have not behaved well to them?
1: The message of the trauma for the young person is don't trust adults, for example. Don't trust male adults could be the message they have of the trauma. And then they arrive to see me and I'm going to see them possibly on their own and ask them to tell me about the worst things that have ever happened to them. It's really difficult for me to overcome sometimes that trust. But the good thing is in therapy, unlike other conversations in real life, you can talk about that. You can actually have an open discussion about what's it like for you right now sitting in a room with a male you've never met before.
0: And will they tell you?
1: Sometimes. But over time, they get used to these different types of conversations we have in therapy. And we're able to start to look at their cognitions, their thoughts in real time, the ones that are happening in the room at the moment, not just the ones that happen between sessions of therapy.
0: And you work with such a wide age range of children. So you're, you're working with very small ones right up to 18-year-olds, 17, 18-year-olds.
1: The younger the child, the more likely we are to work through and with the parents or the carers. And the older the child, the more likely we are to work with the child individually but even adolescents and young people I would always want to try and work with the system around them if I see a child for therapy for one hour and I don't see them for a week that means there's 167 hours when they're with other people teachers family so if I can help those other people to help them to process the events that have happened to them that's likely to be a good use of my time
0: are there ways people can change those memories because they're always going to be with them aren't they
1: The important thing is helping the person to create the narrative that essentially wraps up the sights, smells, tastes and touches of the memory event. So traumatic memories seem to be stored differently to other memories. And if we can create the environment where the person talks it through and tells the story, then it becomes more like a normal memory. Lots of children I work with are afraid to do that. And I'll say, you don't understand, I'm thinking about it all the time anyway. I want to think about it less, not more. And so we have some ways that we explain to people how talking about it might help. If you have a wardrobe with all your clothes, you know where they are. You take them out, you wear them, you wash them, you occasionally iron them, you put them back and you can close the doors and you can get on with your life. And our brains are pretty similar. We have our different memories stored away. We take them out, we use them. When we're finished with them, we put them back and they stay put. But if someone throws you a duvet full of stinging nettles and they say, put it away quick, and you shove it in the back of the wardrobe and you close the door, but because it's not put away, probably it keeps bulging out and it keeps bursting through the door again and keeps stinging you. And difficult, traumatic memories are like that. We try not to think about them. We try to shove them in the back of our minds, but actually they keep bulging out. They keep pushing themselves into our consciousness. And that's unpleasant, so we push it away again. Now, with a duvet, what you need to do, you might get someone in to help you. You take it out, which might sting a bit. You fold it up neatly. You might have to move things around on the shelves. Then you can put it away and it'll stay put. So it's still there, but it stays put. And with traumatic memories, it's the same. You might get someone to help you, and you're going to take that memory and think it through carefully, bit by bit, in a lot of detail. You might have to adjust the way you see the world, but then you can store that memory and it'll be put away. It's still there. We're not changing what's happened to you, but we're changing the nature and the quality of the memory.
0: And there is research now, isn't there, showing that trauma can cause changes in the brain of a child or or an adult. What kind of changes are they?
1: A lot of the research will look at ongoing adverse experiences that children have experienced and will show that the brain is adapting to that environment that the children are in and is functioning differently and some of the structures are actually developing differently as well.
0: And is that a way of helping them cope at the time?
1: At the time, it works really well. Absolutely. So one of the areas of the brain seems to be associated with threat perception and threat response. So if you're living in a family where there's a lot of domestic violence, it's actually really useful if you notice the way that someone looks at you. And if you have this very hypersensitive response and get out of the way, that's fantastically helpful. But once you're no longer in that environment, then actually it's really unhelpful to notice the way that everyone's looking and to have that exaggerated startle response. That ends up being unhelpful. So it's a bit like a spring with a weight. So when you put a weight on a spring, it stretches the spring a bit, you take the weight off, and the spring goes back to zero. And that's our stress response. So if someone tries to steal your phone in the street, you have this rush of adrenaline that helps you to run off or to grab the phone back. That's really helpful. But once the event has passed, your stress response system resets. If you put a weight on the spring that's too heavy, then you take the weight off and it's stretched the spring permanently. So people that experience trauma rather than stress, it's as if their stress response has been stretched permanently. So even after the event has changed, they're still hypervigilant. They're looking out for the next bad thing that's going to happen, and they have this adrenal response. You know, It may even be their heart rate is higher all the time. And then they have an exaggerated starter response, so something that makes them jump and they stay on edge for hours rather than just minutes. So an important part of my therapy work would be psychoeducation because they arrive possibly having flashbacks, which are really frightening, not being able to sleep, always on edge, and they think they're going mad. So part of my job is to help them to understand this is the body's response. And in some re- ways, it's a very useful response. But actually, now is the time to try and help them to reset their system. But it can be very reassuring for some people to realise that there's a normal and natural reason why they responded in the way that they did.
0: And what are you able to do for families where their whole world has been shattered in a way by somebody deliberately doing something absolutely appalling, like you know one parent murdering the other parent, How do you even start with that child to help them rebuild a a sort of faith in people when something so terrible and so deliberate has happened?
1: So I think the first thing to do in those sorts of cases is is to go back to that stability and security. So we don't worry about providing therapy and trauma-focused work two days after that's happened. So if I get a phone call from a police officer saying we've had a father-kills-mother case and we've got these three kids, we want you to come do therapy, I'll say... Where are they going to live tonight? Who's going to put them to bed? Are they going to school on Monday morning? And we start from the bottom up. We start with those basic steps. And once those things are in place, then we can start to think about how do we create around the child an environment in which they feel safe, secure and stable and are able to talk about it when they're ready. And that might or might not mean coming to therapy.
0: So is it good for them to go to school and do some normal things then if they can?
1: Yes. If your life has fallen apart because your father's just killed your mum, that's dreadful. But if it's still geography at 9.30 on a Monday morning, then there's one bit of your life that hasn't fallen apart. And I think that's a very small step, but we can start to rebuild and to reclaim a bit of their normality of life. Um, And teachers, you know, are familiar adults. Some children have a very good attachment with their teachers, and they can start to think things through with their teachers sometimes.
0: And how do you teach them that they can trust people again and that mostly this doesn't happen? People don't kill their partners mostly?
1: One of the important things is to help the child to join the dots and to understand that their thinking, their way of seeing the world now has resulted from their experiences and helping them to really notice that they see the world like this because of what happened to them. And once they can begin to make those links, you can start to look at alternatives. So I wouldn't challenge that thinking too strongly. I wouldn't say you mustn't think like that. That's unhelpful because usually what happens then is the child stops telling you that's how they're thinking. They don't stop thinking like that. I would be much more interested in validating that way and going, yeah, of course that's how you see the world. Of course. But what's the result of seeing the world like that? And are there any alternatives? Is there anyone in your life that you can trust? Is there anyone in your life that sometimes you do trust? And start to look for exceptions to that rule that you can't trust anyone. And then we begin to just sort of chip away at that unhelpful thought.
0: And is there evidence that after all this if the child begins to recover and the symptoms begin to lessen, will that change the brain again? Can the brain recover?
1: Well, we don't have enough research yet to know that for sure. But the reason the brain changes in the first place is because it's amazing adaptability and the the way that it can respond to its environment. So that's what causes the problem in the first place, if you like. But we know that the brain continues to be malleable and changeable for a very long time. And so I would expect that through therapy or through processing the memory... And as those symptoms diminish, I would expect to see those brain changes reverse. But we don't have the research to prove that yet.
0: And what kind of success rates do therapy like this have?
1: We've got a number of randomised controlled trials that show most children will recover and will lose their diagnosis of PTSD and will do okay. Some children, it takes longer. The more complex the trauma, the more difficult it is and the longer the therapy will take. But most children will be able to benefit from a therapeutic intervention.
0: Well, now to the final section of this podcast, the practical advice. So, David, if anyone listening recognises these symptoms in themselves or, or in a member of their family, what help is available?
1: The evidence would support the use of trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy for children with post-traumatic stress disorder. There's also an increasing amount of evidence for a technique called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, EMDR. Both of those interventions have in common the idea of helping the child to think through the memory of the event and helping them to change the message of the trauma. And that would usually be available through child and adolescent mental health services, which is usually accessed through the GP.
0: Yeah, so in the first instance, people go to their GP to ask for that specifically or to ask for some sort of psychological help that would help them with what they think might be PTSD.
1: I think if someone notices the symptoms that we're talking about, their first thing is to not panic. This is a natural and understandable response. And to provide the child with safety, security, stability, familiarity, predictability, help them to feel supported. And if over the weeks and months those reactions are not diminishing, then I think people should be looking for extra help. The GP is a first port of call, I think, for many services. There's also other directories that would point out other services that might be available. Counselling might be available at school. Essentially, it's about finding that person that's going to help the young person to think through what's happened to them.
0: So at first, people don't need to worry too much. Because there is this kind of watch and wait approach now, isn't there, to say, you know, these things might go on for a few weeks, these symptoms, but if it's longer than that?
1: Yes, I think if symptoms are severe, even in that first month, I would still be looking for some professional help because sometimes people are so worried they might make it worse they don't talk about it. So I think a professional can sometimes help the family to say, when the person's ready, it will be good for them to think it through and talk about it, and don't worry. I was explaining this to a 14-year-old from Kosovo who'd had a number of difficult experiences and he got the waste paper bin and put it on my desk and filled it up with scrunched up pieces of paper till they were flowing out the top. He said, these are all the bad things that have happened to me. And as I walk to school, they fall in front of my eyes. And when I lie down and go to sleep, they fall into my dreams. But when I come and see you, we take them out of the bin and we unscrunch them. We read them through carefully, and then we fold them up neatly and we put them back in the bin. But because they're folded up neatly, they sit in the bottom of the bin without falling out, and I've got more room in my head to think about other things.
0: Thank you very much, David Trickey. This is another podcast in a series from Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families, covering issues affecting children's and young people's mental health today. So until next month, it's goodbye from me, Claudia Hammond.